You're listening to another edition of World of Noise right here on X-Ray FM, your weekly dive into the vast sea of sound being made in and around Portland. I'm your host, DJ Bob Ham, And on today's show, we are going to head back to the 80s. Thirty-five years ago, the L.A. band Animotion released its self-titled debut album, a fine collection of new-wave-tinged rock music that stood out from the crowd thanks to intelligent, often introspective songwriting and the musical chemistry of the group's two lead singers. Yet when it was released, it floundered for about nine months until radio and dance clubs picked up on a certain song. That song, Obsession, a tune that the band didn't even write, became a huge hit, landing in the Billboard Top 10 and sending in emotion onto solid gold American bandstand and MTV. Although they had another small chart success, the band wound up falling apart due to internal conflicts and record company meddling. But for that brief window in 1983 and 84, Animotion were poised to take on the world. Instead, it took another 16 years for the members of the group to reconcile, and they've been performing regularly since and even recording a new album in 2017. The reason I bring up Animotion in their first album is that what you may not know is Bill Wadhams, one of the band's two lead singers and the person who wrote most of the material on Animotion's first album, has lived here in Portland for many years, becoming a fixture in the local music scene, and of late, the local theater community as well. For this week's World of Noise, we're going to spend the full hour with Bill Wadhams, talking about the first Animotion album, the impact that that one hit had on him and the band, his career since leaving the band, and the fascinating theater projects that he is working on right now. All of that right here on World of Noise. Stay tuned. Let's jump back to 1979, which is when you moved to Los Angeles, if right. I have that correct. Yeah, that's right. And you moved from Michigan? I wish. No. I wish. No. You I, moved from- I, I actually moved from Fresno, California. Fresno, California. But I'm not, I like to say, I'm not from Fresno, California, as much as I respect Fresnans. <laughs> uh, I was born in Rochester, New York, and then I went to high school in the suburbs of D.C. in Potomac, Maryland. Okay. So I kind of identified as an East Coast guy. And when my father said, we're moving the family to California, I said, where? He said, Fresno. I said, oh, cool. It's near the beach. Wasn't so much near the beach. (laughs) And I was there and I got, I did some things in Fresno and then moved to Los Angeles in 79. Were you, as you were growing up, was it always the ambition to be a musician, to be a working musician, to be a star, to be a pop star? What was the what was the goal with your musical endeavors at that time? You know, um, when my brother was nine and I was 11, um, both of us were playing guitar, and uh, we were both uh, smitten like so many people were by Hard Day's Night and Help, you know, the whole my brother reminded me that we were looking at the newspaper, at the cartoons, the comics, on uh, fe- in February of 1964, and we saw The Beatles Will Be On, Ed Sullivan Tonight, and we saw that, and for us it was life-changing, um, followed by uh, a few months later, um, some events led up to 
my brother getting a two-page handwritten letter from Paul McCartney when he was nine years old. Holy moly. Fan mail. It was the, a re- response to the fan mail. Does he still fan. have it? He, oh, yeah. I've got it. Matter of fact, I've got it. I've got a copy of it at home. Two-page. Beautiful, sweet letter because my brother was in the hospital at the time. And, um, and, and my father wrote to Paul's... Uh, well, j- actually, he just addressed it. Paul McCartney, Liverpool, England. And it got to Paul's stepmother... And then Paul's stepmother mother prevailed upon Paul to write my brother uh, about six months later. Wow. And, uh, you know, my brother ended up being a bass player and was uh, toured the world with Sheryl Crow. So he, okay. he and co-wrote uh, the song Love is a Good Thing for her second album. So he he's a lifelong musician. And uh, so both of us were like smitten by that. We were in bands all the way from middle school through high school. And just kept going and kept going. And uh, so I was very, that's what I wanted to do. Although, honestly, when I got into the age of about 18, 19, trying to figure out, is it, if you don't do, well, you've got to do college. So you do college and what what other avenues do you have? And they were very, you know, it was just really hard. It was kind of a do-it-yourself without the internet. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But at that time, was it? Was the feeling for you, especially, that Los Angeles was it? There was, you know, that was the place to go. If I'm going to make a run at this, I have to go here. I think at that point, I had not been to New York City, so I didn't know, you know, I the music business just seemed so far away. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't even know that L.A. would be it. But But when I drove in and saw the Capitol Records building, I was like, oh, my gosh. It happens here right. as, as much as any other place. I'm going to go through the timeline then of, yeah. of, you know, you get there in 79. So you moved there in 79 and you started, uh, you were hanging around a recording studio. You got connected with someone who ran a recording studio at that time. I'll, t- I'll tell you how that came about. Okay. Uh, so I moved to Los Angeles with one baby son and a wife and then soon after had another son and I had some work going on, but but I found myself essentially unemployed and no idea how I was going to make money, although I wanted to continue to play music. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw an ad in a in the Recycler, right? The okay. Free free magazine, and it said wanted someone to work in a recording studio, and so I followed it to the address, uh, and it was called the Upside Down Recording Studio. It was on the corner of La Cienega and Sunset. And there was a painting of a guy hanging upside down playing a tuba. And it looked like <laughs> Yellow Submarine kind of art, okay. you know, kind of Peter Max. That said upside down studio. I went in the front door and there was a young woman at the desk. She said, are you here to see Randy? And I said, yes, not knowing who Randy was. And then she said, he's up at the top of the stairs. I went up the stairs door was open. I said, hi, Randy, I'm Bill. He goes, how did you get in here? (laughs) And I said, I told him I was here to see you. And he goes, I like your style. Sit down. And he hired me to be a studio manager. And um, he was a guy who really didn't need to have a studio business. He was a successful real estate man. Okay. But he's also a musician. And this building, did I already say the doors had rehearsed there? It was a really a wonderful old Hollywood building and the story behind it. Um, So he asked me if I could just bring bands into the studio. 
to record them. Okay. 24-track recording studio. The great thing about that is then I could call up people. I'd just track down the motels and I'd say, I'm Bill from a recording studio. I'd like to come see your show. They'd say, okay, we'll put your name on the list. Then I'd go and meet the musicians and get to know them a bit and ask them if they wanted to come in the studio. And most of them had other plans. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't a very successful, you know, <laughs> I think I got like one band in there over the course of a few months. But uh, uh, when we recorded that one band, a producer, I played him my own music, my little home demos or whatever. And then he introduced me to someone who owned another studio who then had me play um, play my songs as a guinea pig for people learning how to re- become recording engineers. Okay. So I was, they would take out their calendar and they'd say, Bill, we, what dates would you like to record? And I'd say, this Tuesday, that Wednesday, this Thursday, that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'd line up all these dates and then I'd call up friends and I'd say, have you ever recorded 24-track before? Would you like to play drums on a song with me in a, in a really fine studio? And that was such a great to be able to say that to you know to a lot a lot of musicians coming into town, I hadn't even really recorded in a twenty four track studio until until I got into this place called Soundmasters, and uh, so they would say the class is four hours long. We want you to record from beginning to end. You've got about three hours to record all the tracks, and then we're going to mix it down, and then it's done. So it was a great discipline to come in. And, and go through that process song after song. And it was while I was in that class that someone came in who was managing Astrid Plain, mm-hmm. who, who would be, be my singing partner. And that's, that's kind of the convoluted, like, <laughs> stone to stone that and ended up with me meeting Astrid Plain and then being in Animotion. Wow. Your demo at that time, was the music on there, the stuff that you were playing, was it pretty similar to what you ended up playing in Animotion, or was it a completely different animal? Well, the the thing is that um, what I've written in Animotion and, and Obsession are kind of two different things. Because exactly. I, because I didn't write Obsession. And so when they first invited me to be a part of the band, they said, we'll record your songs. And I said, okay, that was the incentive for me is that it would be my songs and I would be singing and then I would also write songs for her and we would do some duets Mm -hmm. as well. And the guy who signed us said, his name was Russ Reagan, a very highly respected A&R guy at Polygram. And he came to a rehearsal of ours and he said, "Um, I see a guy and a girl, they're both singing, sometimes duets, sometimes solo. It could be like a Fleetwood Mac for the 80s. So that's the way. So as a guy who has a vision and marketing and all that, he said, "I can, I can sell this. I okay, can, we can package this up. We can spin this." <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, uh, and then we got in and we started recording my songs at Sound City, mm-hmm. kind of old-fashioned, like the band counts it off and everybody plays what you call the basic track. So it's drums, bass, guitar, all at once, and then we overdub some vocals, overdub a guitar solo, mm-hmm. um, some keyboards, and uh, Bob's your uncle. But um, then the producer went to England, came back and said, have you heard of Frankie Goes to Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> We're like, yeah. And he goes, well, look, a publisher gave me this song, and I think that it could be a hit for you. 
especially kind of in that vein, right. Frankie and Mike Chapman had produced the demo. It wasn't even a demo. It was actually released as a record with uh, A Night in Heaven, mm-hmm. this, this movie, A Night in Heaven. So when we got the, when, when we decided to do it, our producer got the actual drum part from, from Mike Chapman. So the drums come in from a Fairlight computer. Wow. That, and uh, at any rate, once we started working on that song, it was completely different than working on the others because it was, we were adding in layers. We had synth drums, then the synth bass comes in, then real bass comes in, then a guitar part, then some keyboards, and then we were building it up like you often do these days. Right. Um, So it was built in a different way. And after that record, then I tried to retroactively learn how to write that way or write with that in mind or... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like the song very much when you heard it the first time, if I have this right. Well, um, I didn't like the idea of recording someone else's song on the f- on this debut record. Right. Um, and there were some lines that I didn't like. Um, and I would actually speak about them. And, and when we first started being interviewed... Mm-hmm. I would say, well, you know, there's this line, um, I'm uh, unopened at your feet. I'm a possession, unopened at your feet. And I was like, you know, there were some lines I didn't like about the thing. I swear, as soon as I started going down that path of not liking anything about the song, the interview would go south. Uh. Be like, the guy doesn't even like his own song. Okay, next. Who's next? You know, <laughs> he's got a hit in his hands, and he's yeah, he's complaining about it. So, so Astrid would pipe up. Well, when we when we wrote this song, when we you know we always felt that uh, you know that obsession is. Ultimately, we found out that it was about um, uh, recovering from heroin addiction. It wasn't about a woman. Right. This was co-written by Michael DeBar, That's who wrote right. the lyrics for this. That's and right. So yeah. that that was something he struggled with. That's right. And yeah. And he told me about that years after I'd sung it because I, when we recorded it, even shortly after, we just didn't have contact with him. And, and so finally, Facebook, you know, many decades later, good old Facebook, and I, I noticed that Michael was posting very poetic, very interesting, wonderful words on his Facebook feed. <laughs> and I was like... Did you write the lyrics? I, I wasn't quite sure. Uh-huh. You know, I Facebooked him. Yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, and then he told me, the, you know, the story behind it. Wow. Yeah, so you joined up with this group of musicians who, you, it's not like you guys came up together. You know, you didn't, you know, grow up together in, in Fresno and moved to L.A. together. <laughs> no. You sort of got plopped into this situation yeah. here. But it some, seems like everyone was either friendly enough or professional enough to want to see this out and to see, well, you know, we like what this guy's songs are all about. And I like how he performs. Like, maybe we can make a run of this. Was that kind of the general sense of the beginning of Animotion? Um, I think the beginning of Animotion was everybody felt that they had their own role mm-hmm. um, and wanted to be musicians if nowhere else in L.A. and play in the clubs, Madame Wong's and Troubadour, places like that. And um, and they needed a, a, a songwriter, a songwriter-singer. So I know the drummer felt, you know, I'm bringing drumming, he's bringing songwriting. At one point I said, if, if they're my songs, I'm going to have to be uh, the final say on music. 
because we had some arguments about how this would be interpreted. Okay. Some of my songs. We had some arguments about that. We had to work things like that out. But um, ultimately, I think even from the very beginning, we all had kind of we all had the same goal. Let's see if what we're going to do together could get us down the the path, and the path being signed to a record deal to make a real record. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we were somewhat um, flexible with each other, trying to reach that that same goal. Once we actually had a hit record, then it was like. Then it was difficult because some of us had we had different ideas about what we should do next. Right, I think that happens with a lot of bands. It's like, oh my god, now what? Definitely. I want to ask about a couple of the other songs yeah. uh, on the first Animotion record. Uh, a couple of my favorites. Um, Open door, the last song on the album was always one of my favorites. Listen to this one growing up. Cool. Where did, um, where did thank that one you. start? Of course. You know. Um, I was going to say, this This is partially an answer to your previous question. That is that um, I knew a couple of the guys better than the rest. In other words, Greg and Don were, Greg and Don were my friends. That w- Greg I met in jam sessions in L.A., and he'd worked with Michael Jackson and Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye, and I met him at a jam session, was kind of blown away by his playing. And... Then the guitarist, Don Kirkpatrick, had been in a band with my brother, Tad. And so I was a big fan of his. He was kind of the guitarist that I always wanted to be but could ne- never could manage to do so. <laughs> That's when I decided I'll never be that good of a guitarist. I, I would better stick with trying to write songs and sing. But I loved Don's playing. And he wasn't on the first half of the album. It was after we recorded the first half of the album, somehow or another, he was available and then I brought him into the picture, and then he co-wrote Open Door with me. Mm-hmm. So the dunk, 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 kind of guitar part and everything, that's, a, that's very much Don and some of the um, changes and going into a big guitar solo and stuff like that. That's, um, yeah, that's, it's kind of his, his guitar riffs and my melodies. And what about lyrically? You know, I've been thinking about this a, a lot lately. Um, I I had really, looking back, I kind of wish I'd written a bunch of dark lyrics because <laughs> because that was so good for the 80s, you know? I would rather be the cool, dark, Depeche Mode lyric, you know? Or, you know, um, the Cure, um, wonderful lyrics, but for me, I was still holdover, holdover of the Beatles, so I'm, you know, make your way through the open door to a place that you've never been before. You know, it's like, come on, baby, we can do it. You know, everything is hopeful. Everything is going to be all right. You know, we're good guys. You know, what the heck? Um, you know, I, we, you know, I. We we had a song on there called Fun, Fun, Fun. I'm almost embarrassed, you know, about, about <laughs> especially in comparison to things like Depeche Mode. I was like, oh, my gosh. Although, you have to think all the way early Depeche Mode was kind of cheerful. Oh, right? absolutely. Their <laughs> first <laughs> record. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So. So another one I wanted to ask about yeah. uh, was Everything's Leading to You. Yeah. Which is a great love song. Thank you. I could feel you from so far away Coming closer to me day by day Never knowing 
that probably of probably of any rec any record that I've recorded is um, a, a personal song in a mm-hmm. way because I had um, I had after my first divorce I've, I've I met someone and then that song's about her and then down the road we moved to Canada together and she left me for a Canadian guy (laughs) and uh, oh my god it's so devastating but still um, for me to be so inspired by falling in love with someone that you would think feel like everything all the all the everything that you've been through that's been difficult has led to this moment that you are that you can finally relax and enjoy and um and one of my favorite moments on tour on our first tour we were playing Jones Beach which is on Long Island or mm-hmm. near Brooklyn and um we we were doing you know we would play the first album basically and everybody would always respond to obsession maybe not as much to other songs um let him go they knew because that had become a video um everything's leading to you i i wasn't sure if it was connecting with people or not it was never released as a single but i'll never forget one night at jones beach playing that song and feeling like everybody in the audience was right there with me and they treated that song like a hit song wow and and so that was one of that's one of my most favorite moments on stage um because yeah so um yeah so that it's about it's about my second wife yeah since so much of the songs that you wrote for this record for this first hand emotion record were personal were coming from a personal place um how was it to put yourself in the guise of someone else to sing obsession to sing a song you didn't write was that a difficult thing to do or was that just you know you sort of plugging yourself in in a way going like I can I can relate to this in some manner so I can put more of myself into this than I might have otherwise well I would say that um, the main thing is that I'd been singing since I was a kid and so I just loved to sing anyway so just singing on a record was you know fun in itself sure but so then it's like okay how are we gonna do this and initially the producer said Here's the song, and the male part was not sung, it was spoken. You are an obsession, I cannot sleep. I am a possession, an open at your feet. First of all, I couldn't ever say it as cool as he does. <laughs> anyway, but he wanted me to speak it, and, and I said, may I please sing it? And he said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And, um, you know, there's a guy named J.T. Taylor, cool in the gang. Oh, yeah. And I, I love his voice. I've always loved his voice. And one thing I love about it is that it's he's on pitch and he's emphatic, but he also feels relaxed to me, you know. Um, so I thought, I thought of him before I sang Obsession, and I thought, I'm going to try to be as relaxed as I can, even though it was at the top of my range. I'm singing in unison with Astrid and she was, it was a little bit low for her and it was kind of high for me. So I'm stretching, but I thought I'll just try to relax into this. And so for me, kind of as a singer, I was being, I was 
it's more than like, in a way, about, for me, the expression that I'm feeling in the song is my obsession for singing and music and the music business and I'm really making a record and I'm doing this and who knows what's going to happen and I'm actually kind of pissed off at the producer right now and I he wants me to sing and he's not he, I don't know if this will get on the record or not but I'm going to you know and I'm so all this stuff is going on at the same time and um, but but uh, in terms of words I was concerned at the time and this became an issue with the video that I didn't want to immediately come out of the box and have people think that Astrid and I were in love with each other, that we were lovers. I was wondering about that, actually. I didn't want that to be, you know, the perception. And um, all these video uh, treatments that we got, like, okay, here's here's what the obsession video is going to be. You walk in a bar, she sees you, you go home with her, that kind of thing. (laughs) Really? And I'm like, okay, that would have been, no, that would have been. A little on the nose, guys. Yeah. So one that we didn't do that was so cool, and it came from the people that did um, the the song Cry. Godly and Cream. Godly and Cream. So they had a video production company. Amazing videos. Amazing video production They did like Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Yeah. All sorts of great videos. They gave us a treatment that said, we build this big metal set, and somehow or another, we have a green day glow ooze just pulsing. Just every, the, the set is just pulsing with this gobs of green stuff. And that's pretty much the treatment. <laughs> and, but you know what? It would have been pretty damn cool. Instead, I'm in a Roman warrior's outfit. You know? <laughs> but I've got the Hollywood sign behind me. That's right. You know? And, uh, and it was a trippy night. But, the, but how, one of the way we got there was I said... I don't want it to be just me and Astrid about, I'm obsessed with you. And he said, okay, how about if we take the line, who do you want me to be? And now we'll make it a Fellini movie. There you go. So he kind of had me at Fellini. I was like, (laughs) okay, that sounds great. But, you know, when it really comes down to her being Cleopatra and me, Mark Antony, and then a samurai warrior and a you know, astronaut. It's it, as my youngest brother said. I can't tell if it's really cool or really stupid, <laughs> which is kind of how you define the '80s. I was going to say that's that's a pretty great description of a lot of '80s videos. <laughs> I know it's interesting you say that about uh, people's confusion, maybe about having uh, Astrid in the band with you, because I think that's one of the things that. I think even you were talking about the A&R guy noticing it was that balance between the male and female elements of this group that made it so dynamic and so interesting. Right. Um, I must say that, uh, you know, Astrid and I didn't see each other for 14 years. And then I contacted her and said, hey, um, let's talk it out. (laughs) And... um, we, we sat down and we uh, made peace and we decided that if we ever had an opportunity to play again, we would. And then a couple of years later, we were on a jet flying to Florida to play a fairly large concert. And she said to me, you are the last person that I expected to be with at this point in my life. <laughs> and I said, yeah. Her husband had left her and he was the bass player in the band. So he was her ally. I was the bad guy. Now I'm her ally and um, her friend. And uh, um, we've been performing together for almost 20 years now, which is a lot longer than the back in the day. Right. But also, we, I realized, and I admitted to her, I said, you know, back in the day, I thought, 
I'm with this woman, and she has a different style than me. I don't want to be seen the way she wants to be seen. I don't want to sing the type of music that she wants to sing. I don't... I. She can be who she wants, but not on stage with me. <laughs> and I, in, in some ways, she might have felt the same way about me. I mean, it, what, it wasn't black and white, but, but at times I'd be like, we had, a, we had a war once over, we were at a huge concert in Oakland opening up for Howard Jones, and the place was packed. We went out, and I'm living my dream. And then Astrid says, the band and I would like to come out and give you all a great big hug. And I thought, that's just so not Robert Plant and, <laughs> you know, my heroes. The, the who would not say right. that to that. And I've got all my scripts figured out. You know, I've kind of like know what I what my dream is about. And, um, and I, you know, and so afterwards I said to her, you know, if you're when you're talking to an audience, speak for yourself, and that became the beginning of like, oh my God, she caught me like in my hometown of well, the D.C. area at Meriwether Post Pavilion. That was so tongue-tied at the place where I'd seen the Who and all kinds of people, and all I could say to the audience was, "Hey!" After a song, "Hey!" <laughs> I didn't say anything but "Hey," <laughs> and afterwards. Um, in front of record company, managers, fans, everybody, she said to me, Bill, if you don't have anything better to say than hey, just don't say anything at all to the audience, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> we just had, we were just oh, kind of hard on each other back in the day. But now we realized it's our differences that make it more interesting. Right. So you don't have to, you know, not everybody in the band has to be this kind of, you know, thing, which... I get I get that now um, so much more than I did in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> to give a little background to anyone who might not know it, because, you know, you made one other, uh, the second record, Strange, Expe Strange Behavior, excuse me, with uh, Astrid and the rest of the band, uh, as, as, it, as Anna Motion was at that time. But then uh, you were sort of encouraged by, I don't know if it was management or the label or something like that, to uh, push Astrid out and to concentrate on you. Is that a fair fair way to put it? You know, actually, here's a better way to put it, I think, and that is that the man, we felt that our managers were being too soft. We were getting pushed around, so we got new hardball managers. Ah. What we didn't realize was the hardball managers, they were managing Richard Marks, and we knew that, and this was at a time when he was getting, his first album had five top five records. Right. So they were... Kick-ass lawyer, uh, kick-ass managers. Richard Mark's girlfriend was Cynthia Rhodes. So, what happened was the managers suggested we move Astrid and Charles, the bass player, her boyfriend, out. They had some reasons why they presented to us. You'll never make money as a six-piece band or whatever. <laughs> they had a few other things to say, but we think that you should um, get a stronger person in Astrid's role, um, and and et cetera, et cetera. But what they really had in mind was just getting Richard Mark's girlfriend a spot in a band that had a record deal. And wow. So, and so what happened was first they they suggested we get you know we make this move and that the record they'd already spoken to the record company about this and they said the record company's excited about it 
they're all in this corner, so why, why don't you go over and kick your bandmates out, which is essentially what we did. And then we came back, and they said they hadn't said anything to us about Cynthia Rhodes until after we fired Astrid. Well, uh, yeah, after we power played them out. I don't think fired is the right word. But we came back, and they said, we were talking to the record company. We told them the deed is done and that now you'll be looking for somebody like Cynthia Rhodes to uh, replace um, Astrid. You know, someone who's an actress, singer, dancer. Wow. And they said, you know what? And the record company loves that idea. And I said, well, you know, we've just been through kind of a devastating um, uh, experience here. We... Are going. We'd like to look for someone who's really compatible with us. We'd, mm-hmm. we'd like to. Um, and they said, "Look, if you go against what the record company is excited for, you're you're out on the street." Right. And so we were hoodwinked. Um, and then I met Cynthia. I liked Cynthia. I've got a great photograph of the four of us. You know, the new band with Cynthia. And. Uh, but then when it came time to choosing songs, again, the record company was just not... Re- well, it, Russ Reagan had left. Mm-hmm. The guy who had signed us had left, and the guy who replaced um, him just wasn't in our corner and had this idea of having other people write our songs and Cynthia will be up there singing and it'll all work out somehow. And, um, and I got emotional about it and just quit after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really... It was not very good form of me to push people out and then quit. I'm guilty as charged. But thank goodness uh, Astrid has forgiven me, and we're having a good time now. And Greg Smith is back with us. And our second drummer, who was with us from the second album on, uh, Jim Blair, plays with us as well. Excellent. Yeah. Take me back just for a little while longer to that period nine months after the record comes out. And the single is starting to take off. Obsession is starting to become the hit that it turned into mm-hmm. because it landed in the top ten. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like? Watching that happen, watching the buildup of interest in the band and fans coming to you guys and people buying your records, and you were becoming stars, if only for a little while. Yeah. Well, like I said, after we recorded the album, put out the video and everything and it looked like it was just going to fizzle. I mm-hmm. mean, we we were popular in Los Angeles, but not so popular that we were packing the palace or anything. <laughs> <laughs> we we were on the radio. And a matter of fact, the local radio was kind of I mean, local reviewers were a bit harsh on us. Um so, you know, there were a lot of great bands in LA at that time that weren't in the top 10. Right. So, um so the environment was, we've got a record, we're getting some play, but it's, there's no, we didn't have a lot of money. They didn't give us big advances. Or, we weren't living the rock star life. You were painting houses, as you were saying. Painting houses. And then, um, you know, uh, when it did get into the top 10, it was, gr- it was gradual. Like one of, the, one of the first shows we played after it became a hit the first time we ever kind of encountered a bunch of fans that were just crazy for it that otherwise didn't know us at all. You know, I think as a, 
you know, just a guy in a band, you're used to, oh, we've got a few people came out Wednesday and hey, they came back. The and you grow like <laughs> 10, five. Wow, we've got, we've got 18 fans. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> but to have all of a sudden people just crazy for you is mind boggling. And, uh, and I remember the first time I signed autographs at a table, someone said, give me something of, of yours. And I was like, I don't know what to give you. And she said, give me your shoes. And I said, well, I just bought these shoes. And she said, yeah, but you're a millionaire. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I sure am not a millionaire. I'm so not a millionaire. But, but uh, it was kind of fun. All of us, I think one of the, that was one of those moments where I realized people's perception of who I am and what being a rock star is or something um, is so... Uh, glamorized that um, there is a there's a gap between what it really is and what it seems like on the outside at the same time right. at the same time what I've come to enjoy is the fact that I can be that I can be I can if someone is ha, has enjoyed our records and has come to a concert I can be I can be your rock star I can be that guy <laughs> I'm happy to give you a hug sign your thing and and people will tell me a story about something that happened with obsession, children, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I can we share that moment together, you know. To me, that that's that's. Uh, um, but going back to the in 1985, it was very gradual. So it started with like a kind of a club out in East LA where people came, were crazy. Then they put us in a Winnebago. We went from San Diego to. Vancouver, BC, playing in venues that would hold a few hundred people or something, and people were coming out. Um, while we were on that tour, the song was jumping about 10 points a week. So it started, it hit the charts at like 80-something, and then it was 70-something, then 60, and it just... It, and it was when we were at like about 60 or 70 that they said, put them on the road, put them on the road, throw them out there. So bam, we're out. We're and so while we were traveling, it was going up the charts, and and at first I was like, oh my god, I can't believe it, because in a way I felt like now I'm stuck with an emotion, and <laughs> <laughs> no, and we've got a hit that's not my song, and so how is this all going to work? And even some reviews were saying, well, if you like Obsession, you won't necessarily like Bill's music, and so I was having an internal like conflict going on but when we got to about 17 with a bullet i said i don't care how we got here just let it ride let's just enjoy this mm -hmm. and uh, and then after that mini tour i think we did an east coast tour and then we got on a national tour with howard jones and now we were playing to ten thousand people and and that uh you know so now it was a whole different thing and and as much as there was some difficulty with the band there were also i would say most of the time we got together before a show and we just held on to each other and then we went out there and we had the time of our lives after you leave the band um did you continue on trying to make music and trying to get uh you know the, your recording career moving on or did you put that in the corner for a while well, um, I did want to carry on, um, but I felt like most of the people that I knew in management or record companies, at least the people that I knew, the, um, I just didn't know where I could find uh, 
someone who I just wasn't sure who to turn to. Um, at one point, I met um, uh, Seymour Stein in New York City. The guy who started Sire Records. That's right. And I, I met him before Animotion broke up. But I thought, man, there's, there's some, this is someone who I could work with in the future. And um, I don't know, for some reason, after the record, I just, uh, I was, I just was felt kind of burned, and I, I was also, in in my marriage, my wife did not like the um, music business. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why, right. and uh, and she was sick of L.A., which is why we ended up moving to Vancouver, B.C. But for for a minute there, not just a minute, but I I actually, I recorded some more songs. And it, and a, and there were some attempts to kind of get that off the ground. I had some close calls. I would say I had a couple of producers say, "We're making a record. We are making a record." Some famous producer said, "Bill, we're making a record. Just uh, what else have you got? I love this. What else have you got?" And then I'd send more music, and then I wouldn't hear back. You mm-hmm. know. Um, so I was taken down the path a few times, and it just wasn't gelling. Um, so. When I moved to Vancouver, BC, it was really, I could have, it, it was like going to the moon, you know, just like, was very unplugged mm-hmm. from things. So, okay. It was the least musical time in my life. So I really, I, uh, at certain turns in my life, I get, I've gotten kind of emotional about things and it's kind of, I'll just really pull out. So you landed here in Portland yeah. in 93, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you had been playing music for a bit here, I think. Am I am I am I right or wrong on that? Before, before this, I'm, I'm asking especially before you reconciled with Astrid and the yeah. rest of Animotion. Yeah, I started out playing uh, acoustic guitar in places like Tugboat Brewery down next to Mary's. You right. know? I really loved that little joint, and uh, and I was, I had a, I I'd sold a number of guitars and things, but I had a beautiful acoustic guitar, and I was writing beautiful acoustic songs. I think and. Um, and then I uh, wanted to record some things. I met. I met. I went into a studio. Turns out the engineer was a drummer, and he and I started writing together. Nice. So he was like, "Oh, I like your music. Maybe you could help me with my solo album." And I said, "I like your drumming. Maybe you can help me with mine." But it turned out we collaborated on a record called Black Barrel, and uh, we spent three years on it. Because he owned a studio, the two of us just languished. I mean, we just took our time. We would meet, <laughs> we would meet once we, we both were working. I was actually working at Wyden and Kennedy as a graphic designer and he, he was running his studio. So every Friday we'd take the day off and just write, mm. you know, and, um, jam, jam, write, jam, write. And we did that for three years until we came out with the record. So now you've, re- as you said, you've reconciled, you reconciled with it, with, uh, with Astrid in the early 2000s. Yeah. 2001. 2001. Started playing again with that band. Um, and you recorded another record, Rays. In 2017. 2017. So that's like, it took us 16, 17 years to get that together. <laughs> you know, yeah, it took a long, along the way we'd record something, we'd record something here or there. And okay. it just didn't sound professional enough or we just weren't sure what to do with it. How was it for you to get back into the mindset of writing for this project and writing for these players? Well, 
first of all, oh, I, I was I was just really writing for myself, although I could enjoy writing um, with some 80s vibe to it because mm-hmm. I finally, after so many years, figured out how to sort of produce my own music in my home studio. You know, the technology's gotten so sophisticated and, and yeah. more intuitive. And so I can figure out how to put a drum beat, you know, I, and, and I play keyboards as well as guitar. And, and uh, so I have a lot of fun there. And so um, still for me, it would be about melody and groove and, and some guitar. And and so I I was having fun. I've had fun all along um, ever since I left Canada, that is, um, playing. And, uh, well, after I came back from Canada, and it took me a while before I got into the groove of recording, you know. And um, once I did, uh, then I could write stuff for myself to sing with her to sing some harmonies. And then she started writing as well. And she is prolific. She will write a lot. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff she writes is very good. And we started playing it live. When we ended up doing our record raise, the guy, the main man who was in charge of the label, just wasn't crazy about um, some of the songs that she had pre-written. On the other hand, she has a couple songs on Ray's that she wrote the lyric and I helped her craft the melody, that sort of thing. Uh, so she has some writing on this album for the first time in Animotion. But she had also been writing beforehand mm-hmm. some other things that were kind of cool. Um, she has a, We used to perform a song called Something Worth Fighting For and she had been through a breakup and she's, she's, the song is about telling the man she's with can't we just fight for this, you know, marriage? Can't we fight? Just, I think it's worth fighting to stay together. I want you to meet me there. And it's, so it's a great strong lyric and it, that, that didn't end up on the record for whatever reason. But, um, when Animotion was touring again, playing shows, um, you did play some of these, you know, package tours, sort of centered around the 80s. Yeah. Which um, is not... Um, Go for it. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> that's, that's, the point I'm trying to make is is that I'm not... I, I don't want anyone to disparage those those type of tours or those yeah. type of shows. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you know, I, I have so much respect for uh, bands like yours and bands who are on tours like that who are still making it work and still out there and still you know grinding it out and playing these shows and there are people who come out to those shows that are so happy to see these bands again and so happy to hear these songs live again and I I'm in a way it was part was part of what I was going to say was so glad that you you guys didn't feel cynical about that and didn't feel like well that's not us we can't do that. You know, at, there are times we feel cynical about some aspects of doing that, or, or even more so, like, we'll, we'll be like, why are, they, why are we going on before that band? You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of that, you know, especially when you have seven bands. Wait a minute, let's see. We had a, we had a number six and a number 32 and a number eight. They only had a, you know. A, um, or, hey, they only have, like, one member of the band and it's the bass player or something, right. you know? Like, why? why? But, um, uh, you know, we started playing with Lost 80s Live probably 2002 or three, And when we first started out, it was typically 
three or four bands, maybe three bands, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and so we go out and we play forty five minutes and we kind of play whatever we want plus plus obsession. Mm-hmm. Now it's gotten down to the point where there's seven bands and everybody's playing their hit songs and everybody gets maybe you know we play like four songs instead mm-hmm. of uh, forty five minutes. But as you say, um, still, uh, you know, we're walking out into an audience that we otherwise wouldn't access. You know, we're in Fiddler's Green in Denver, 8,000 people, the sun is setting, and we've got four songs. That's better than not you know i mean it's great it's yeah. great and we got you know we got scolded for staying on a little too long in our set but you know <laughs> but um because we were having such a good time you know now i want to move into talking about just what you're up to now because i think you have taken a fascinating turn in the work that you're doing now because you are um working a lot in theater here in portland when did you decide that is a area you wanted to explore what happened was um 2012 i got a call from rick lewis who is a musical director he's been the musical director for many shows at portland center stage and artist rep and um and now runs bridgetown music which is a wonderful school for for up-and-coming artists and um he just knew of me i'd never worked with him but he said um uh, i'm calling because there's a musical artist rep theater called Next to Normal, and it was a 20, uh, 2009 Tony Award winner for Best Musical. There's a part of a, a, a husband and his wife is having um, issues, mental issues. It's, a, it's about hardship after loss of a child, and uh, it's an amazing play, and um, would you be interested in auditioning for it? And I said, Ab- absolutely. Now, I had studied... I'd studied acting in Los Angeles, and I'd even studied some here, and I'd done some TV commercials and stuff, mostly because my my wife, Kate, who I've been with for 25 years, she's she's a native Portlander. But Kate uh, had done some acting in New York, and she was doing some acting here. So we took an acting class together. So when he called me, I thought, okay, well, at least I've, I've got a little bit of that going on. Um, he said, I'm I'm confident about you being you having the right voice, but if you would put together an audition tape um, that we can give to director John Kretzu, then um, we'll we'll know whether we think you can do this. And so I went to Powell's. I got a book of monologues. I worked on it for like a day and a half, and I and I sent something in, and they booked me to be in that musical. And um, so then it was five weeks of rehearsals and forty-two shows at Artist Rep, and I loved it so much. I just loved doing that. And um, the musical director, Rick, said to me afterwards, you should think about writing a musical. And I thought, man, you know, album after album, the concept of doing another album, it's um, not as appealing to me as doing something else Mm -hmm. with something, another purpose. Especially, I like the idea of writing something for other people to sing. And... um, <clears throat> so that was 2012, and after kind of working on it in a vacuum for a couple of years, um, Louis Douthat, who was dramaturg at Oregon Shakespeare Festival and my wife's cousin, <laughs> <clears throat> she'd been there for 25 years. She said, Bill, Bill, um, 
you're a good musician, but you should think about working with a playwright. I'd say, okay, especially for your first one, Bill, come on. So I called up Sue Mock because I had met her while auditioning for a play. I mean, after after Next to Normal, I, I wanted to continue to do more plays in Portland, but there didn't seem to be very many roles for my age and gender. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, I started going out for, for dramatic roles, and I came close to getting some parts. One of them was The Lost Boy, written by Sue Mock. Wow. I wanted to be the kidnapper <clears throat> that she had written in this, um, takes place in 1865 or something, in this uh, kind of a tabloid story about this desperate guy who kidnaps a boy hoping that he will get rich quick and be able to save his starving family mm-hmm. and everything goes bad of course of course <clears throat> but i want to be the bad guy but the good thing I, that came out of it was i met sumak and then some years later i asked her if she would be interested in writing with me and she she was very much interested and then at a certain point she came to me and she said look i i want to pitch an idea to you the event around the Vortex One concert in 1970, mm-hmm. and and uh, how it affected Portland, um, how Tom McCall dealt with it, all of the um, everything that was going on around Vietnam War protests 1970. And I said, "Bam! I love that because I was in rock and bands back in Maryland in 1970. I was going to the Washington Monument for protests. Um, I was." I went to Nixon's second inauguration parade, and uh, and it was uh, shocking because people were just cussing him out as he went by, and the cameras weren't really telling the American public that's what was going on at the time. Right. Um, I mean, it was really scary because there were um, snipers on the roofs. So I thought, oh wow, I like this the 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 area here that we're talking about of um, 1970 Portland, and so. I started to learn about it, and um, and now Sue has completely written the script. She's written every word to every song with a f- few very, very minor tweaks on my part, and I've composed all the music um, for 19 songs, I think. Wow. And um, we are going to have our next uh, staged reading, which means 12 actors, five-piece band, on stage, um, the actors will have scripts in their hands, mm-hmm. but they they're going to be they're going to act it out to a certain degree. It's not we're not just sitting on stools. Um, we did it once in January, but we did Act One and two scenes from Act Two. Now it will be both acts, and um, it's been a long hard road, but I I'm thrilled with it. When is that stage reading going to happen? February third, twenty twenty. Okay at the Village Ballroom on Northeast Deacom. The tickets will be available through the Fertile Ground website um, whenever they get that up. I, I think it'll, they'll probably be available within a matter of days, if not a couple of weeks or something like okay. that. Okay. So you have that coming up in February. You've got a tour yeah. coming up in the summer. Do you have any plans uh, musically around those or in between those events? Um. You know, I've I've kind of found a little happy groove in McMenamin's venues um, over the last few years where um, I'll play at various of their rooms. Um, I'm going to be 
at Al's Den from February 2nd to February 8th or 9th. So the week that the Fertile Ground is showing is I will actually also be <laughs> doing a residency at Al's Den. A residency Den. at Al's Den. I'll take that one night and, um, you know, someone will sub, sub out for me. But otherwise, I will be there the, the whole week. And what I'm hoping is that some of the actors who sing with me at the reading will also come in and we'll do some of the songs from the musicals um, at, uh, at Al's Den as well. Um, otherwise, as I mentioned in an email, um, I've been working on a catalog of songs that describe my life, that come from points in my life, mm-hmm. and um, weaving them in with the stories of my life into a uh, um, into a theatrical presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill on Burnside. <laughs> it's not really going to be called Bill on Burnside, but but at Alsden it will. Um, <clears throat> but it's the, you know it's like a Springsteen on Broadway in in that it's um, stories and songs. And the I would love to be in a theater and sing my songs. Like for instance, everything's leading to you, and I'll mm-hmm. I'll tell the story about how I was just over the moon in love with this woman, and we had a wonderful time for a while until. Um, some things happened in her life that made her very despondent, and then she found someone else to lift her out of the reality that was the difficult life that she felt she was living at mm-hmm. that time. And so um, she left me, and uh, and I was heartbroken, and then I wrote a couple songs to try to win her back, and I think they're some of my me- best melodies. So if I tell you the story about the night that I was in Vancouver, British Columbia out on the cliff wondering whether to jump and then I wrote this song um now it means the song means a little <laughs> something <laughs> you've got a bit of an insight and then I launch into the song and I think um it's a you know and I feel like that the stories that I want to tell are just stories about coming to a crossroad and then trying to make the right decision mm-hmm. and not always making the right decision, which I think is something that everybody does. And that, so it's, it's, um, it's not a story of, um, let me tell you all the great things that happened right. um, when I was uh, in an emotion or, you know, let me tell you about that. It's, um, it's uh, you know, it's just real life and the best I can do musically. Well, I look forward to that coming to fruition as well as every other project you've got on the horizon, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming down to do this. I my, really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Robert. I appreciate your interest in what I'm doing.